0: hit me just the other day before I rolled out of bed one morning. Without you, there would be no sunshine, there would be no rain in the season. Without you, I know that I couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't even drink. sunshine on a summer day, I need you more than I need a home, more than I need food, more than I need these clothes I'm wearing. Greetings, thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura. Promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life all to the glory of God, and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, a word for our sponsors. CR 101 Radio Network is a Christian reconstruction internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. CR101radio.com is where you can go to find information on all that's offered there. GCS Apprenticeship Program also is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the task and honor of being a Christian teacher, owning and operating their own Christian school. Take a look at gcsapprenticeship.com for that. Opening up with a little bit of scripture to deal with the subject that I want to talk about today for our time together here. Proverbs 18.9 out of the King James Version says, He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. The ESV translation says it like this, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. You know, in our day and age and in our society right now, we don't have a very good work ethic. Um, People are not trained to have a good work ethic, and it's very hard to get people of this generation, the prior generation, to want to have a good work ethic. And in a lot of ways, you can lay this at the feet of a bad Christian worldview. Actually, it's just a bad worldview, because a Christian worldview looks entirely different than what we see in the world today. So I've decided to change stuff up a bit with this episode being the fourth one. That uh, we've had here with Christian Reconstruction Radio, and I want to address one of the real problems in the church that seems to just not be a subject many people address or want to address, and that's the subject of what I'm going to call self-sufficiency and the Christian family or in the Christian worldview. When we think about uh, the subject of self-sufficiency, our mind often goes to growing gardens, canning food, raising livestock, and other such activities, wherein one would take care of themselves and make themselves, quote-unquote, sufficient for the future. And no doubt this is part of self-sufficiency as I am speaking about it. No, no doubt about it. Uh, I and my family and many people we are associated with are very much involved in all of these types of activities, anything in my opinion, that a person can do who's a Christian um, to make themselves liberated from the evil world. And I know there are chains that cannot be broken at this time, such as property taxes and other such things in that regard that um, go to fund the ungodly school systems that are are poisoning the minds of children throughout this country. But nevertheless, uh, all those things, canning food, livestock, um, all those activities, farming for one's family, just agricultural endeavors, knowing how to do things for yourself, um, those will produce the type of self sufficiency I am talking about and going to talk about. but that's not exactly the direction in which I want to want to um, speak of it while I want that to definitely be incorporated into the thinking. And so regardless of what presupposition a person brings to the table with the ideas of self-sufficiency, what I want to talk about is how a Christian comes to the table with the idea of self-sufficiency. What's the goal of it? Because if one's a Christian or a non-Christian, it's a normal creaturely habit to prepare for the needs your creaturely body will have need of in the future or has need of presently. Okay, so to be sufficient or to take care of yourself is normal it 's natural squirrels do it, bees do it. Um, you know every animal that man uses for his use in fact is doing that in a desire to be sufficient for itself for the propagation of its offspring and for the future ultimately that 's just a creaturely thing to do. Uh, we take the milk from milk cows because they create it for their their offspring for their babies, for their calves. Um, We take honey from bees, but the bees are actually making it to store up for the next season to come. But man comes and takes it um, for his uses. And so we raise things in agriculture for our own sufficiency, but we're actually tapping off the natural sufficiency that the Lord placed into the will of the creature that we are tapping from, that we are taking from. Um, This is no different in any agricultural, uh, you know, adventure. Uh, Wheat, no differently, you know, it produces grain so that it can plant that grain in the ground and produce more. We speak of it almost as if it has a will of its own. And in fact, it's the will God gave it. So what I want to talk about is the will God has given a Christian towards self-sufficiency. And where are reconstructionistic focus should be in that direction, as I understand it, and as I would push it. And I don't really know if there's too much of another way to push it, considering all creatures, which we are in the flesh, um, and I would say all spirit is desiring a form of sufficiency, of self-sufficiency. Even if that sufficiency is to fulfill oneself wickedly, as we would understand it from a Christian perspective, one wants to suffice themselves with whatever it is that they themselves want. And so what I'd like to start with is a lawful and thus scriptural foundation for this sufficiency that those who are Christians, in fact, are in need of, but should be within them already. It should already be there. It should already, the seeds of it, the nutrients of it should be there. So let's start with a scripture that on first glance could seem as if it is entirely contradictory to self-sufficiency until the foundation is in its conclusion. Let's go to the book of Second Corinthians. The apostle Paul is speaking of a form of sufficiency. You could call this second epistle to the Corinthians Uh, the book of sufficiency, because the English word is used more than in any other book, okay? And so as Reformed Christians uh, would know, and just from a trained response you you should know, though it should be heartfelt, um, that there is, of course, the free gift of grace that comes from God that we can nearly just guess that the depth of the meaning of sufficiency has to be rooted in. Right. So anytime we talk about sufficiency, just, you know, knowing the five solas just leads us to the knowledge of grace alone. Right. We, we know that that's where everything comes from, that God reveals himself to us. And so in Second Corinthians. Um, chapter three, verse five, it says the apostle speaking to the um, people At Corinth, the church of Corinth, it says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And while we know that this context is not dealing with sufficiency as we would commonly refer to it, or as we would just generally think of it, as the apostles are declaring that the Spirit of God is the true worker and writer in the heart in the context of what's said, of the hearer. Alright, so if we were to look at the context of what's being spoken of, you would see that they're very much paralleling the terms of the new covenant, that God would write his law in the heart and mind of, of his people, put it in their inward parts, um, that he would forgive their sins and iniquities and, and that uh, he would uh, remember them no more, and then that these these people, the people would know God. And so all will know him from the least to the greatest. Okay, is the terms of the new covenant, and if you go and you look at Second Corinthians three, you you'll see this parallel that they're making with these Corinthians being um, the epistle or the writing of the apostles. Okay, and it's it's what they have said to them is the work of the Spirit of God. It's worked in their life, and so they are representing in parallelism that just as the New Covenant is written in the heart in Jeremiah 31, and Hebrews chapter 8, of God's covenant people, that that same um, writing will be reflected in the life of the believers that have received it, the elect children, the covenant members that have received it in the church of Corinth. And so in the essence of what this statement tells us, is that even the apostles who first taught the first century churches we read about in our Bibles, uh, it says not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In this matter, this is the work of God to make the words of the law and the gospel, which is what's contained in the New Covenant, known to these people, to reveal it from a writing to a knowledge, okay, from that knowledge to a way of life, a theonomic thought process, in fact, a thought process surrounded and and using the law of God to understand the world. And so a heartfelt conviction as real as the blood that's in your veins and all that this contains is unable to be taught by men. It must be confirmed and written by the Spirit of God, okay? Because we know that no flesh is sufficient of himself. Flesh is not sufficient to teach this, okay? Only the Spirit of God is sufficient. That's what you'll find in reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and kind of a recap on it. And in the same way, we see another quote concerning sufficiency in 2 Corinthians 9.8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, towards the church, that ye always have all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Notice, all sufficiency in all things that they may abound to every good work. And so we have this final statement that the Lord gave Paul that is here for all of us to ponder also in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Says, and he, Christ, said unto me, My grace, that's his free gift, is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, Paul says, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This final quote, this last one, when thinking of Paul, the amazing apostle who covered the Mediterranean. Um, European world, building up the church and calling pagans to repentance, that in all of his accomplishments, in all of his strength, he says his strength was made perfect in weakness, that it was in fact the grace, the free gift of Christ that was sufficient for Paul to do all this. That is that he needed that spirit of God by grace more than everything else in his life to accomplish what he needed to do, that his strength, in fact, was made perfect in weakness. Wow, that's a hard concept to get. That's a hard concept to realize that the the church's strength is sometimes made perfect in weakness. And that, Paul even gives us an example that despite unanswered prayers, Uh, despite that Paul has this thing he calls a thorn in the flesh, that it was this grace which had its deep taproot watered by the work of the Holy Spirit and not of his own self. And so that's something we need to think about. That's something that we as Christians who claim to be recipients of the grace of God need to think about, that that grace is sufficient despite unanswered prayers. That grace is sufficient Despite our weaknesses, and in fact, the weaknesses that we have are oftentimes, if we would have let it be, as we can see in Christian history, made perfect by that weakness. That our strength is more perfect because of that weakness. So this is awesome examples to the church of our root of sufficiency And from whence it is derived, in fact, a nutrient source that cannot be unacknowledged by a true believer. And so what of this Christian call to self-sufficiency? How can I speak of this and then just join it to these words, sufficiency, and, and speak of it in this way? Well, this is where sufficiency of any kind has to start with a Christian. In fact, it actually starts there with common grace given to everybody because if not, we'd all self-destroy and self-destruct, but God restrains us. We know this. And so all sufficiency that we can speak of as Christians has to be laid at the feet of the grace of God and to the glory of God. And so this is an acknowledgement that we are not sufficient of ourselves from the beginning. I have to say that from the very beginning because nothing I'm going to say, nothing I'm going to support, Nothing I'm going to talk about is outside of the grace of God in my thinking or in the way I want it to be presented, okay? Even in dealing with those rudiment elements of uh, sufficiency, such as canning or agriculture or or whatever it is that I listed out uh, in the beginning, all of that's given by God's grace, and it is by God's grace and to the glory of his kingdom that I should desire those things or even want those things or that you should want those things for the benefit of what God has given you to advance his gospel and his law. And so because we are made sufficient by this grace of God, what does that enable us to do? That's my question. What does that enable us as Christians to do? And as Christians, we have the law written on our heart and mind and knowing the Lord also, right beside that forgiveness of sin, seems like oftentimes all Christians want to claim the forgiveness of sin and iniquity, but not as many want to say, I have the law of God written on my heart and mind. And, uh, you know, you'll see people who will say, I know the Lord. And you'll meet people that say, "Um, I know the Lord and my brethren all know the Lord. And we're all forgiven of sin. But when you go, what about the law of God? Is that written on your heart and mind? Oh, I don't know about that. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that real Christians, according to the New Covenant, all have God's law written on their heart and mind. It doesn't mean that they know what it says, but it's written there, and they need to want to know it and understand it and read it. That's part of the growth in the sanctification process of a believer. And so uh, does this not call us to a place of self-sufficiency as true Christians, as Christians who have the law written in our heart and mind and who know the Lord from the least to the greatest, according to the terms of the new covenant, having the forgiveness of sin and iniquity, does that not call us to a place of self-sufficiency in the Lord? Ponder that for a moment, especially when we consider that the church as a whole is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body, as Colossians one seventeen 17 through 21 makes very clear. And in the context of knowing all things exists by Christ, thus it says in verse 18 of Colossians 1, that Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. He's forefront. And so we know that it pleased the Father that in Christ should all fullness dwell having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, Paul says, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, both, and you, us, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet now you also have been reconciled. And so it's in the body of his flesh through death, that we're able to be presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight. And so this should help us acknowledge the headship that is found in Christ with its mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the scriptures says elsewhere. And so we know that having this headship has within it the mind of Christ and that we are made sufficient and we are sufficiently led as believers, by this reconciliation, into the world to accomplish the things of God. That we are to reverse the wicked works that we were prone to in times past in making us sufficient to live out the perfect will of God. That we are fit to actually live out the will of God. That we have no excuse, in fact, to say, We can't do that. The law is too good. But rather that if there is a sufficiency that comes from God, by God's grace, that he is our head and that we are living for him and that we've been reconciled, then we have the ability to try to live out his will on earth, to be sufficient in this life, to be self-sufficient as Christians individually, but also together. That is, that we can enact much of God's law in this world while we are in the flesh. See, it's one thing to say that we are made sufficient by the grace of God. It's another thing, on the other hand, to live as if we are sufficient by the grace of God. And to say this as a united body in Christ, and that that is a reality in our present day, almost seems more like a dream talking about it right now, something I'd love to see and something maybe you would love to see, but something that we are not seeing. And then again, there are also those out there who confess to be Christians who say that's a nightmare to live under the law of God and to um, see Christians working together to accomplish God's will. There are Christians out there that they hate God's law and they claim they love Jesus. I don't believe that they really could, but that's what they say. And so some are very comfortable with their supposed sufficiency having its dependency on the world with very little care to the contradiction in their life. But, you know, truth is, is that many Christians who probably would would agree with me up until this point also have those types of contradictions. And it's not just in some places in their life, but it's all throughout their life. They are dependent upon the heathen, they're dependent upon the the pagan, they're dependent upon what we call the world for much of their life, and they have no ability to help their brethren with what they have accomplished. In fact, going back to the words of Solomon that we had read, Proverbs 19, I'm sorry, 18.9, they are slacked in their work. And it makes them a brother to him who destroys the great waster. That's not the kind of position a Christian should be in. He should never be slacked in his work and be brother to the great waster. The Lord Jesus Christ takes special care in his earthly ministry to leave his disciples with a lesson on sufficiency. uh, From pretty much every angle, if it's considered in Matthew 6 starting in verse 24 Sadly the church has not taken heed for maybe a century in America and maybe even further back in Europe in any meaningful way to be sufficient and seeking in the way the Lord God has called them to be Notice the what our Lord says concerning this state Matthew 6:24 No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowl, or the birds of the air, for they sow not. They don't go out and plant anything. Neither do they reap, in the sense of a farmer, nor do they gather into a barn. Not that they don't have nests. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he asked the disciples that are listening, are you not much better than they? It's a good question. 27 says, Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Shall he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Wherefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that he hath need of all these things, that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Notice how our Lord laid out these things for us to consider. It's a a fascinating group of verses uh, that the Lord teaches on. And one of the things that's always struck me about this is that there are um, commands in the law of God, New Testament, Old Testament, some of which we're going to read, that deal specifically with feeding your family. It deals specifically with um, taking care of you know others and taking care of earthly things. And so it's very obvious that what the Lord is teaching us is not that we should ignore um, the necessity of, of taking care of our family because that would make us worse than an infidel, We know that the law of God has taught that all throughout the scriptures and that the Lord's not calling us to neglect our families. He's not calling us to neglect ourselves either. And so what he's calling us to is, I think, summarized best in verse 33, to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. In what the Lord lays out for us to consider, we have ourselves first, we have ourselves first, we have birds next, and then we have the grass, all of which are given what they need from that which the Lord has given them in what they are. Don't miss what I'm saying. Inside of all those things, inside of the bird and the grass, as for our example, there is a physical nature That is given to them. And so, in dealing with man, we both have a physical, in the flesh nature. We also have a spiritual uh, nature. But also, in all things, there is a supernatural composition which he, as creator, has made unique and has equipped all things for his use. Okay? And so, the disciple is told to seek the kingdom. That is something he is told to do. That should be part of his nature. If grace has made you a kingdom seeker, then it is that we as kingdom seekers together are to seek that first right beside God's righteousness. And so this is to be part of our nature. This is supposed to be what we are and how we are, just as the birds are what they are, just as the, the uh, uh Lilies are what they are, and the grass is what it is. The Father knows that we have need as flesh. Like the birds, like the grass, we have physical needs. But he has made provision that which is sufficient for them to acquire what they need. Okay, A bird, for instance, has feathers, wings, mothers that gurgitate and regurgitate their food for their young, as gross as that may seem to our will and to our desires, that's how they're made. They have beaks to eat the fare God has given them to every race of bird, a different beak and claw. Um, they have appetites that will to desire to eat whatever it is. Some of them they maybe be carrion and eat, you know, dead things, and others just eat nuts and plants. And so regardless of which bird we're talking about, the clean variety or the unclean variety, the Lord has equipped them and given them a will and desire to Take care for the things that they need, and so likewise we would find the same in the lilies of the grass as a whole. Um, it cannot be ignored that God has equipped them with the ability to root and to absorb its nutrition, okay, like its food, and then they can also transform sunlight into growth via what we call photosynthesis. Okay, so God makes these self-sufficient to survive through his will that he has emplaced in them by his supernature. Okay, and so these are made sufficient to be as they were made to be. It should be no different for the disciple of Christ, of the church. What of the called out? What is it that makes us self-sufficient? It is the grace of God, the acknowledged grace of God, knowing what it is that the new covenant has done to our heart and mind. Does God not make us as men to not only seek his kingdom but also equip us with the desire of his will, just as the birds and as the lilies, to place it first as the head of all things by the quickening that he has given us, by our converted heart and mind that desires the truth of God's righteousness? Is this not how we function? It should be. Is this grace not sufficient for the saints, as it was for Paul, even in weakness, to be made strong? That the troubles of life we know are, as the Lord said, to be sometimes burdensome tomorrow? That there is a time that is not always the best in the future? But that now, at this time, at this day when we have salvation... Is it not now, that day of salvation, the day of the enthroning of the son of David, the righteous branch, the king that reigns and prospers, who executes judgment and justice in the earth, whereby God's covenant people, Israel and Judah, call him the Lord, our righteousness, according to the scripture? Is that not where our sufficiency is as kingdom seekers for those who can hear it because they are of the church? Is it not found in the grace of God to do all things in that deep tap root that's fed with the nutrition that God has placed there by his own will? And so we know what we have, and it is not the sufficiency of ourself to change one hair from gray to black, no, not to add to the height of our cubit, but within the kingdom seeker of God's righteousness, only found in Jesus' headship, we are made sufficiently reconciled in him as partakers of his divine nature and as able ministers of the new covenant. So with that introduction to biblical and lawful and thus Christian self-sufficiency, where do we go next as joint heirs with Christ that together as seekers of his kingdom and as his righteousness, Where do we go in understanding self-sufficiency? Well, I think we have to go to a concept called brotherly love that we have distorted and changed into something much more um, infantile, maybe. Maybe that's even too highly elevated for some of the emotionalism that's going on in the world right now. But I think we have to go to an aspect of brotherly love that we often do not have taught to us enough, and some of us never at all. I know I was influenced um, by some ministers at a very young age to think this way, thank God. I was barely out of my teens when I started to listen to some ministers uh, that were really minded in biblical economics and really minded in getting the youth to think, and that is what really got me looking in this direction guys like Bruce G. McCarthy and um, some others out there, guys that uh, talked about this stuff, and they wove it into their message all the time. I started to think about brotherly love in this sense of helping the church and helping my family. And while I came from a family that practiced these principles as members of the family, of what we're going to talk about, of being self-sufficient, that we looked out for each other, we helped each other in projects um, and, and things that needed fixed. I did not understand how this should look in the Christian model of the family and as individuals working with each other, particularly within Christian families, working with Christian families, working with each other and so on, until I had started to consider some of the works. Of the elders that came before me on these subjects. And one of the verses that we are going to discuss um, out of 1 Thessalonians 4 was one of the verses that always stuck with me on self-sufficiency and on learning to be self-sufficient, particularly by a uh, late brother in Christ who uh, I had the privilege to know and be friends with, Bruce G. McCarthy, who was a huge monetary realist teacher and a constitutional law teacher, uh, among all kinds of other biblical exploits that he was involved in in his life. And so he was an elder in our, our congregation. And those words from 1 Thessalonians just stuck with me. Um, and really drove me down the road of self-sufficiency, of wanting to see how that works and studying it out of the scripture. And so when dealing with the biblical word brother, I think is the direction I need to go with this in order to help explain going to brotherly love in a consideration. And one is hard-pressed to ever show its pattern of understanding definitionally outside of some very simple family Language And I know last episode we talked about this some in probably what most people would think is a more uncomfortable way, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in that way because that's where the understanding of the concept is in the Bible. If you go outside of this simple family language that's talked about in the Bible, you very quickly just can't make sense of the Bible anymore. It starts to become very Gnostic. You kind of just know what it means, not because you can actually focus on it and expound upon it and understand it, but because you actually are limiting yourself from trying to understand what it means. And so this is all made hard to even know what it's talking about when you start trying to tie certain spiritual interpretations um, and what that means among rational men. Whenever you start rationalize rationally and know what things mean, then you start throwing an allegorical interpretation in there. You... um, lose track of the meaning of things. And so whenever we consider the word brother, we're just dealing with very simple family language. I'm going to give an example of it that's not exactly um, probably something everybody you know uh, wants to hear. But if you go, went to Leviticus 18.9, in the law of God, you would read the nakedness of thy sister or the nakedness of your father or daughter of your mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover. It's evident this is not an allegorical law dealing with one's Christian alliances in the common faith, okay? Just reading that off, I've yet to meet anybody who 100% allegorized that that verse. They might be out there. I'm sure there's probably some, actually. Uh, They're probably not real Christians. Let me take that back. They're not real Christians, but... There are those, I'm sure, out there who would allegorize that and marry their sister if they were allowed. That's just the way the world is right now. And so um, most people don't take that verse and just say, you know, this is about religion. This is about uh, our religious brothers and sisters. Um, But rather they take exactly what it naturally says and what it means as what it is, regardless of what your brother or sister's faith or religion is, it says don't marry him, okay? And so, you know, that's pretty much the gist of what it's saying. And so that's a straightforward understanding of what a brother and a sister is. And so likewise, we then know that brotherhood follows an order of descent and relationship, okay? You can't speak of brotherhood without following an order of descent and relationship. And so that is to not, in terminology of relationship, as you would find in Deuteronomy chapter 15, rule over one's brother with rigor is not allowed, okay? It's not allowed to rule over one's brother with rigor because it's, it's dealing with one's brother. And we know that's the terminology of relationship. And while the scripture in Deuteronomy 15 goes on to say one may own one who is not their brother um, as a servant, that is one who's outside of the tribes of Israel in the context of what we're talking about, because they are not brothers in the sense of what is being spoken of, regardless of their faith and regardless of their religion in the same way, that there is a law that says in one related fashion a person can rule over another, and in another fashion they cannot, because it is to support brotherly love, because it is a law that supports brotherly love. And so, that's pretty straightforward I think and and direct that in the law of God whenever you read it one who is outside of Israel's tribe are not considered brothers in the same way those inside of Israel's tribes are considered brothers okay that is if you go back to a further ancestor even that these people are related to like maybe Noah for instance uh, they are, in a sense, brothers in speaking, but they are not brothers via Israel, who God changed Jacob's name to. Okay? And so, to understand how to rule over your brother with rigor according to the law of God has a difference of understanding depending on the relationship that is had. Those who were not of the tribes of Israel were able also. To have usury imposed upon them. They were allowed to have perpetual servitude voluntarily. That means those who were made servants volunteered to be so. They were not allowed to be, you know, stolen or anything like that, forced against their will. But they were perpetually made servants or placed under usury for a longer period than one's brother could. But in the case of this servitude, that they would voluntarily place themselves, and they also place their own children into a perpetual servitude. Now, I am going to go into a direction that is both literal in explaining this, but also very spiritual, I think, in talking about this today. So if you're ready to tune out thinking, you know, I'm going down a road you probably don't want to hear, you might want to stick around and listen, because I want to deal with the family, problems in the Christian church and in the countries that we live in, as I know that this radio uh, broadcast goes out all over the world. And so particularly, I'm going to be dealing with Christian family problem that we have because we do not even consider the laws I just read in the sense of self-sufficiency as family sufficiency, in the sense of church sufficiency, and in the sense of any familial sufficiency whatsoever, we don't, as a whole, think about it in that way anymore. And so some of us who can remember before the social media age hit, remember how it was much more common for families to work together. Okay, We remember, at least I remember, um, fixing houses together. I remember uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents owning businesses together from one generation to the other and, and working on, on jobs together. They fix up uh, the car or the tractor together. all within the family, they helped one another. They bore one another's burdens. Babysitters were oftentimes taken from relatives, um, you know, or sisters for mom and dad when they had an appointment to go somewhere. It was a family affair. it was a family matter. They were sufficient of themselves to take care of these matters without having to hire outside. The family wasn't broken entirely. It was common for communities to be self-sufficient for needs that one and other were able to suffice the other in doing, okay? We had wealthier family members and poorer family members. We had those who owned businesses and had more money or things um, that could give work to those in their um, family. And so we had relationships that existed in this way, to help one another to be more sufficient one another, and then outside of this closer um, brother and sister bond that you know people would help one another, you also had the uncle bond and the aunt bond okay, and perhaps then we go outside and we see the church working together also but this often still fell and, f- and fall on family lines I mean how many churches of any quote-unquote conservative, I hate using that word now because I don't even know what it means politically. It's used um, haphazard. Anyhow, um, going in the wrong direction there. But, you know, in any conservative-type churches or more God-fearing churches, lawful churches is really what we should be calling it, commandment-keeping churches, these still generally fall on family lines. They're family churches. That's what they are. And so even when we look outside of the family, family structure, we see families within the church, in churches, not talking about the buildings, but in the assembly that come together, helping one another. And so, by observation in my own life, you know, in the time I've lived, as well as in considering things I've read, this system always suffers havoc within when two things um, occur. Number one, when dad's not religious, Okay. Whether he's truly faithful or not, or one of God's elect, or he finds Jesus at the end of his life, that's not the point I'm talking about. In raising his family was not religious. He was not faithful. He was not outwardly faithful, and his children knew it. This man did not personally train up his children to be men and women of faith, is what I'm saying. And thus, families, secondly, families in subsequent generation had less or no children born within it or without marital structure so you know looking back at the generations we're talking about in the last four generations even um you know particularly last two and three but four generations now people were born out of wedlock much more commonly than they were prior to that and so after dad was not religious and was not faithful and didn't train up his children in the way they should go to be faithful men and women second the family and subsequent generations had less or no children that were born within or without the marriage structure. Children just weren't as common. And so even illegitimate children weren't as common, partially because of abortion, partially because of contraception, but entirely because they didn't want children. And thus, most of the brothers and sisters have little to no reason to unite. And they foresee, consciously or subconsciously, the failure of their family in the next generation. And so thus it affects that present generation and that which is to come. And so sufficiency in this family with one another depending upon each other and helping one another is lost. It's lost. And all become more like strangers one to another. All become less like brethren. They will work together for profit, but they will not... Help one another just to simply seek the advancement and sufficiency of the family that they are all part of. They lose that, and likewise within the church. And so here here is the church then. Even amidst its families that all come together and know each other, we have little time to advance the families we are related to as much as we are willing to advance our own selves. That is, we are more than willing to become more self-sufficient for just us than we are to help promote our brothers to also be beside us in their sufficiency, as we will see in the law of God to come. That is, though some have a sufficient supply of the world's goods, of the people we're talking about, all that God has given them, They do not either benefit the children with a better situation or their brethren to a common goal that is vested in the kingdom or help others at all to achieve it. They're vested in themselves. Even if they're good godly people, in one sense, there is a lack of people who want to help and who are willing to be helped by family, by the church family. By all of those connected bonds. And so how often do we have a near kinsman to help advance um, one who is of a godly faith in our, our, our day? Do we prefer to advance our brother or our sister, our actual family member, and those who are in Christ just simply to advance the kingdom together, to support this national church family, this theonomy that we desire to see, that we seek, this kingdom that we seek, that is supposed to be right beside God's righteousness together as Christians, do we do that? You know, I think about what our ancestors did in America, for those of us who came to America, back in the 16 and 1700s, and I think about how particularly the Scots-Irish and uh, the English and, and the Germans, they grouped together, they worked together side by side, they helped each other out, they built houses, they built their barns, and it wasn't about the pay. And even if it was about pay, like you know a cow or something to help you get through the winter, it was about that advancement of the people of God in a new land where there was no one there to help them. You couldn't depend on the strangers to help you. You couldn't sometimes depend even on, you couldn't always depend on just some collective good to help you. And so thinking about that, what difference is there in our Christianity because of that lack of brotherly love? There is a sad answer to most professing Christians to these questions. We don't want to do it. And sometimes you just don't care. Don't care. The kingdom's not advanced. You're willing to complain about the kingdom not being advanced. You want to blame it on someone else. Most of the time, you got to blame it on somebody else. Blame it on the world. Blame it on Satan. Blame it on the wicked. Blame it on another religion. Blame it on somebody. But don't blame it on the church. Don't blame it on your own family who doesn't help itself. Don't blame it on you. Whoever's in his work, is a brother to him who destroys the great waster. So listen to Paul's lesson to the church that he gets right out of the law of God when you define what he's talking about. Concerning brotherly love among the church of the families of Corinth. Remembering back then it was pretty common to have church families all in one area. And so in the church of Corinth, that's exactly what's being spoken to. And so 1 Thessalonians... 4, 9 through 12, I'll read it out of the King James and the ESV just to make sure it's understood. It's one of those verses that I first heard on this subject that I'm trying to reach out to you with about the church's dependency on one another to be sufficient because they are both part of one body that I feel is greatly lacking in our day and age. It's greatly lacking in the church right now. It's greatly lacking in our preaching. It's greatly lacking in any major voice that preaches to the brethren. They're more worried about their pocketbook, their offering plate, and what they're going to get than they are with helping their own family and their own brotherly churches. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it towards all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, as the apostles commanded you, meaning it had to be a command of God. That ye may walk honestly towards them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Here's how the ESV says it. Now concerning brotherly love, ye have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs to work with your hands as we instruct you instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders strangers and be dependent one on another what's paul talking about where did modern christians drop the ball on this court that's a, that's the real question here where where did where did modern christianity just like stop teaching this verse Well, I think it started when it started to not be as popular to love your family, to love your brothers. That's what I think it it pretty much is, to love your children that are coming after you, uh, to love where you come from, to love your Christian people more than you love other religions, to love your family more than you love other families. I think that's where it pretty much happened. Notice what Paul's saying, though. Let's go back and look at it concerning brotherly love. This is about loving one another, okay? In the Greek Septuagint, I noticed that the first time in the Greek that I could find many of these concepts that we've already talked about now is in a verse that's normally misread by English readers in the King James Version and others. It's in Proverbs 17.7. It says this, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I don't know how many people read that and think that it means that brothers fight. It doesn't. That has nothing to do with it. I've even thought that before when I was younger. You know, I was like, yeah, we fight all the time. Brothers are born for mercy. I like my friends a lot more. It's not what it's saying, though. Uh, <laughs> so here's uh, one translation of it out of, that, out of the Brenton Septuagint. Have thou a friend for every time, and let brethren be useful in distress, for on this account are they born. Read you one more Septuagint translation out of the ABP, the Apostles' Bible polyglot. It says, oh, let me get there. It says, for, for all times let the friends exist to you. And then it goes on to say, but let it be that the brethren in distress be profitable for this favor, because that's why they're born. Well, that's a little hard to read. The ABP is not the most fluent uh reading translation. But it's exactly what it, it's trying to say. They're born for adversity not because they're born to fight with, but because they're born to help to help one another. In the Hebrew mindset that's entirely what it's talking about. See the idea of friendship and brotherhood mixed with love had a particular service that it renders out of a common grace that each were in, and also out of a particular Familial bond that they would share And so Paul's admonition was an urge as brothers To do this more and more he said To love each other more and more And that this was to aspire to live quietly To mind your own affairs To work with your own hands As they had instructed them As they were commanded So that For this reason, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one to be a self sufficient church. There's a concept that derives from the grace of God, that seeks after the kingdom of God, and that thirsts after his righteousness as contained in Jesus Christ through holy law. To walk properly before outsiders is that concept. And to be dependent on no one. To depend on one's own self that hinges upon brotherly love. This is Christian self-sufficiency. This is what I'm talking about. This is an admonition to not depend on the outside. Not to depend on anyone but brethren. And for the outsiders to see you, do not it does not matter who they are, okay? You want the outsiders to see you depend upon your brethren. You want the outsiders to see that your de- brethren depend on you. This is an admonition to, number one, work hard. We're not having any loan of anything that comes from the heathen or from outside of the family, according to the scriptures that we're going to see in the law, which means not having bank loans, to not have dependency on the heathen at all, but to strive always more and more to live within your own means, to not have to be indebted to others, to love your brothers as kinsmen and to know they're there because on this account they were born to be your brothers, both in the flesh, that means your real brother, and your reborn brother in the spirit, and vice versa. Together you have become heirs of the divine nature of grace because there will be days of adversity. That's why you were both born together, side by side. Okay? We don't hear this kind of stuff. We don't hear this kind of preaching. We don't hear these kinds of lessons, but I'll tell you what, these are the lessons that moved me to want to be self-sufficient. These are the lessons that moved me to want to see the church become dependent on each other. These are the foundation stones, I believe, of Christian reconstruction, in fact. Because without joint families as a nation working together by the same grace to support one another in the days of adversity... There is nothing that stands up. Without those foundation stones that will support one another, there's nothing there. There's no nation. There's no kingdom. So for this cause in times past, men did not take handouts. You know, I remember hearing time and again when I was younger about the older guys that were alive during the Great Depression. When the government first said, hey, we're going to give people free money, stimulus checks, they just gave them the money, though, and you put your little signature, I guess, on a dotted line somewhere, those men, even if they took it, went back and gave it back. I don't know how many times I had read stories about men who wouldn't take it, but would just work harder. And while it was almost like they couldn't tread water, it was hard to stay afloat. They were unwilling to take help from anyone outside of their family and their church. And if they were all going to be poor, then at least they had company. They were all going to be poor together. And so these stubborn old men that I remember hearing about were the men that I used to respect, the men that I always wanted to sit down and listen to their stories because that's how you knew you were dealing with someone who had principle. Something that we are lacking greatly today. No principle. I remember being told stories about godly grandparents that only had meat on the day they regarded as a Sabbath. They would have a chicken because they were chicken farmers. They didn't even kill them for themselves. They mainly had a dinner of herbs. Herbs so that they had no need to ask others for help. That sink in with the gluttonous society we live in today where we say, if I can't have it the way I want it, I will ask for help. I will cry aloud. I will not stay quiet. But the generations in time past, and us, this scripture is alive. It's quick. It's powerful. It's here to teach us today. Taught by the scriptures, these Christians who listen depend on family and faith and they only speak as loud as they needed to for help when nobody came to help them first. If there was no one there. You only speak as loud as you need to to get help. That is to foremost strive earnestly to work hard. More and more. Increase more and more. Work harder. Second, to study to be quiet. Third, to do our own business. Fourth, to work with our own hands as it is commanded. And So here's an example out of the law, Deuteronomy 22.4. You shall not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way, by the road, and then hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him to lift Them up again. Now notice, he that needs help is quiet. The helpful brother is the one who offers to help. Thou shalt not see your brother's ass or his ox, fall down by the way, and hide yourself from it. You shall surely help him to lift it up again. This is what we do whenever we don't help one another. It's as if they have an ox in a ditch. Let's go to some more unpopular verses. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Now in this particular verse, what it's referring to is a stranger or a sojourner, traveler from another place, someone you don't know, but he's one of your Israelite brethren, your Hebrew brethren. Take thou no usury of him. Usury is the borrowing of money that when the principal is paid back, there's extra added to it as for a user's fee, so to speak. But the law says to this brother who's waxed poor, take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God that thy brother may live with thee. That thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Notice why God brought them forth out of Canaan, gave them a great land to live in, to be their God. And if thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto thee, Thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bond servant, so one of your family, one of your people, is sold to you in Leviticus 25:39, because he's poor, that though he's sold to you as a slave, and you could, if the government didn't enforce it, which the biblical government was supposed to enforce this law you should still not compel him or force him to be as a bond servant, a servant bound that cannot leave. But rather, it says in 40, you are to treat him as a hired servant, as a sojourner, that's a traveler. He will be with you, just like someone who just stopped by to work for you. And he shall serve thee unto the year of jubilee. Because every 50 years in biblical law, the land inheritance was always given back to its owner. And so the man would no longer be poor at that time because every family and every kindred had its place and that land could never be taken away, not by taxes, not by nothing. And so in this case, God is saying, for brethren to take care of one another, even for 50 years if they have, it's a lot to ask, isn't it? High calling. Brotherly love. Leviticus twenty-five forty-one says, And then shall he depart from thee, both he and his children with him. And he shall return to his own family, and unto his own possession of his father shall he return. For they are my servants, which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondsmen. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear thy God. Both thy bondmen and thy bondmaids, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall you buy bondmen and bondmaids. And that's where we get into more unpopular conversation. So we'll stop right there. But nevertheless, what do we notice? A preference towards brethren in helping one's brother. So listen to me. This is the law. Of nature's God. This is Yahweh the Lord of hosts. Law. That brethren are stronger together. That they are given to one another at times for adversity. God teaches us himself how we are to treat one another in love. To have brotherly love. And that helping one another in times of need is what you are born for and you are born again unto Consider Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-three. also. It says, the stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high. Thou shalt come down very low. So now we're dealing on a national level. We're dealing with a time of curse according to the law of God. It says, all these curses shall come upon thee, and you shall pursue thee, and shall pursue thee, and overtake thee. Thou shalt be destroyed, because you hearken not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. They shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wander, and upon thy seed, thy children, forever. Because thou served not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, that is, when you were sufficient. You did not give thanks. Little Romans 1 in there. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, the strangers, which the Lord shall send against thee. The Lord sends them. And you will serve them in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Because you did not use your self-sufficiency, the scripture saying, as you should have to attend to your own family, to your own brethren, in seeking the kingdom and God's righteousness. As God's righteousness clearly teaches us in all of the laws concerning brotherly love, Christians will together serve the heathen. They will serve the stranger. And he will lead you by his godless, satanic ways in the direction he desires because God is punishing you by him. And I would say already is punishing us. Are we not already Christians predominantly, people with Christ's name on their mouth, predominantly bound to godless banks? Are we not bound to institutions? that make every credit that we spend and save on a system that further punishes our seed, our children? Don't we pay taxes now that teach the children to kill their babies? Is this not a sign and a wonder upon us already? Is not the usury that we pay in our loans, not myself, but for those who have it, is that usury not used To support a corrupt and wicked system that we claim that we hate? Because as a society of Christians, we for generations now have not used our resources to seek the kingdom and its righteousness. The righteous law that clearly shows us that we are to prefer our brethren, that we are to prefer our Christian brethren, and to support Christianity, biblical Christianity, over profit. And that for those of us who are poor, not to speak any louder but to be quiet than beyond the family and the church. Here's the alternative that we face. And we just read about in Deuteronomy 28. And we're facing it right now. We are taught time and again the nonsense of abandoning the family order In the brotherhood God has placed us into for this time of adversity, and we spurn it now. At this time that we see America plunging itself into hatred of its parents, plunging itself into hatred of everything in its past, whether it be Christian or European, straight or name the normalcy, we are being told on every level to support this. And we are not using all of the God-given equipment that we have been endowed with to bring it down. We enjoy those imaginations that exalt themselves above God just enough that we don't want to tear it down. And so what's the repercussions? Well, Leviticus 25, 47 goes on to talk about that. It says, if the stranger, sojourner, or stranger, wax rich, which is what all that credit's doing right now, and your brother that dwell by him wax poor and sell himself to the stranger, the sojourner, by the, to the stock of the stranger's family, then, well, let's stop there. We have brethren that are in bondage. And do we have the brotherly love to fix the problem? That's my question. What is the Christian response? What is the lawful response to help our Christian brothers? What is the lawful response to help our family, our kin, our kinsmen? All those biblical words are simply defined. What, what, what is our Christian response? What will our brotherly love do? Will we, after that he is sold, be redeemed again? Because he's one of our brethren, will we redeem him? According to verse 48, as his uncle, his uncle's son, will they redeem him? Will any that is nigh of kin unto him, of his family, redeem him? Or is it going to be at the utter end where many of us have to redeem ourselves because no one will come to redeem us. It's a sad situation we're in. What's even more sad about it is the perpetuation of the hatred of the fifth commandment honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land, are working to the effect to drive the people whose fathers and mothers conquered this land, settled this land, built this land, by the Christian faith that was in their hearts. They are the ones that are getting driven off of it because they hate their parents. They hate their brethren. They hate themselves. They're not sufficient. Though many of them say the name of Christ, they don't want to change very much. All of our efforts are not waging this war is what I'm talking about. There's a war before us to aid our family and our faith. Our cognitive dissidents right now on this subject is shown in the way that we are not self-sufficient in the desire of the, ch- of the church. The church does not have a desire to be self-sufficient. The families do not have a desire to bond together and to be self-sufficient to increase more and more. They're not willing to study to be more quiet. They're not doing their own business. They're not working with their hands. Their brothers, great destroyer, they're a little slack in their labor. They're sluggards. But we as Christians are commanded to help our brother out of the poverty that they have come into. And so where is it going to end? You know, when is it going to end at this nonsensical look at the way Christians and family are to interact in this 21st century um, paradigm that we're in? When is that going to go away when is it we're going to realize that we are destroying ourselves by not using the biblical example out of God's law, his righteousness, and applying it to our sufficiency with his grace at the root, with his great feeding it? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but I'll tell you one thing. We need to start helping, if we can, those we can help. And for those of us who cannot help and are trying to redeem ourselves, just keep on working hard at it. Study to be quiet. Study to be a hard worker. Make your own businesses. Find all the ways that you can to save. Find all the ways that you can to make more uh, of a living, to make more so-called money. Um, do what it is that you can do. And hope and pray that you find brethren that you can bond to, in the church, maybe brother and even in your own family, which would be the best situation, and bind to them and be part of them and love them and let them love you. And and maybe, just maybe, we'll see a Christian nation rise up out of the ashes of this fire that we have seen uh, kindled in the uh, self-love and the autonomous desire uh, of this wicked nation that we are in at this very day. And so with that being said, those are just some thoughts I thought I'd offer. I think they're at the core of what's going on right now, and they're things that people just don't want to to consider. And so thanks again for joining me on Christian Reconstruction Radio. Um, We'll uh, see you again in another two weeks. Take care.